Well, thank you very much for the introduction. Clearly, I need to cultivate uh, a more mean uh, facade with the uh, NIH program staff. Uh, so, thank you very much for the introduction. It's always nice, actually, it's always nice to be able to come up and see uh, people up in the city and, and uh, living in a place where there's no public transportation other than there's like one bus that I see. I think there's one bus in Nashville that runs around this sort of couple hours. I got to take the subway last night, so I feel all, all New York. Um, so I want to tell you today two stories, uh, one that will be about beta cells and insulin secretion and the second half which will be about alpha cells and glucagon secretion and, and I would say that uh, I think I might know more about alpha cells than most uh, everyone in the entire world which is pretty close to zero. So it's not that we know a lot about alpha cells, it's just that most people know really nothing about them. Uh, and so in that, in that light it will look like we know something. You'll see, I think we're pretty ignorant about it. Uh, so um, I just like to motivate this quality of diabetes crowd is not so important, but uh, I think this is a very interesting thing. This is, this is my blood sugar. Actually, it's not mine. I didn't take it out of me. But uh, this is the amount of blood sugar I should have in my system, in my, in my blood, which is about four, uh, 3.8, 4 grams of, of blood sugar. That's my resting uh, blood volume uh, for my height, weight, and age uh, at 5.5 millimolar. And so this is, you know, for an average person, three to five grams. And, and we can easily add a bolus of, of ten times what we normally have resting. Does anyone know how to do this? And usually, if it's the seminars in the afternoon, half the people are doing this already. Right? <laughs> uh, you have one of these, and, and of course we all have these. And I think that in light of this sort of, of uh, caloric, happy environment that we live in now, um, that it's not surprising we have an epidemic of diabetes. What is surprising to me is that we're not already all dead of diabetes. And, and the reason is because we have this amazing control system, uh, and uh, it's based on both the pancreas and the liver, and I'm a pancreas person, so I'm not going to say anything about liver, but there's lots of liver people, and I know there's liver people here that think that's the dominant push, so I drew it in on my pictures. Uh, but there's this, this uh, a twofold control that comes from the pancreas, where if you have a meal and you have sugar and you get high blood glucose, then the uh, beta cells secrete insulin that uh, tells the liver to start sucking up glucose, it tells the peripheral tissues to start sucking up glucose. If you go down low, then the pancreas, uh, the islands also secrete glucagon, and they tell the liver then to start making glucose and to uh, start trying to, to get this back up. And so this yin and yang of these two is really helpful in controlling uh, blood glucose. And in a sense, you need both of them. Diabetes is a disease that, that gets rid of one and actually exacerbates the other. And, and if you talk to Roger Unger at Texas Southwestern, he'll tell you that this glucagon is really the important player. Uh, I think uh, that what we've learned, and, and hopefully I'll make the uh, case today, is that both of them are equal players. And insulin, of course, because therapeutically it's been so successful over the years, it's insulin, 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 which is why at NIH they have like three grants on alpha cell and glucagon secretion now. But I think that it should be a more balanced approach. And maybe at the end of this, I don't believe that I want to convince everybody that it should be all glucagon all the time, but I do believe it should be a balanced approach. Okay, so the first half of my talk, I'm going to talk about insulin secretion. And we've worked on this for over 20 years now. And we've done a lot of things looking at how the beta cells synergistically communicate with each other to have a much different response. And this is important because the individual beta cells have a certain response uh, where they sense glucose and secrete insulin. But all together, when the island is together, you have a much steeper response. And this is a very critical spot. Here's our normal red blood glucose level. And you see that 
any excursion above the normal level results in a very rapid and steep rise in the amount of insulin. So this is very important. And this is a characteristic that does not happen in the individual beta cells if you take them apart. This happens, this steep rise happens only in the islet. And you can think of it as all the cells have to vote. When one cell starts going, the other one's going to keep it down until they all vote that they're all going to go. And then this cooperativity leads to this very steep rise. Cooperative, cooperativity not only in enzymes, it also happens in, in tissues. And it's very much an allosteric type of event. And we've spent, uh, the first half of my career was spent sort of understanding that, uh, not only experimentally, but also with mathematical models. So how glucose stimulated insulin secretion works, and because you can take islets out and they're nice and intact and they have a lot of the behaviors you see in vivo, people have studied islets, and you can put glucose on and people think well, glucose is, blood glucose is what controls insulin. And so this is a really well understood pathway. Glucose comes in, it's, it's um, goes through glycolysis and citric acid cycle, which generates ATP. The change in the ATP-ADP ratio closes these potassium channels, depolarizes the membrane, calcium comes in, insulin goes out. This is very much like any sort of synaptic neurotransmission that you would have well understood. These pathways are pretty well understood. And then there's also calcium-sensitive potassium channels that then open and repolarize the membrane, and you get these oscillations in membrane potential, in calcium, and in insulin secretion coming out of here, and we can look at these with calcium indicator dyes, and uh, when you see this, you see these pulses of calcium, and you see it going across there. These, are correlate, these correlate with pulses of insulin secretion. These waves go across an islet, which is about 100, 100 to 200 microns across in a few hundred, 100 milliseconds to 200 milliseconds. It looks very much like cardiac uh, calcium action potentials. Um, of course, in the islet, they do, we do have these waves. They're not important. They're not pumping anything like they are in the heart. But they're gap junctionally coupled, and we understand that very well. And we see these going across. <clears throat> but what I wanted to talk about today is non-glucose-stimulated insulin secretion. So glucose, of course, does something. But in vivo, uh, it probably does less than half of the job. We know that if I look at something that I really like to eat, like a, a, a caprese sa sandwich, I, which is something I very much like, especially I have a lot of basil plants in my backyard. And uh, that's one of the things I wouldn't have if I was in New York. <laughs> yard. It's a green part. <laughs> okay. So if I have this, uh, I start, my, my, you know, I, my mouth starts watering. At the same time my mouth starts watering, insulin starts going up. And you can actually do these in studies that you give to your kids and your mouth starts watering and then you take the sugar away and all of a sudden they go nuts. Right, because they've got too much insulin in the system, the glucose goes low. So this, we know that insulin can happen there, and there's other ways where insulin can go down. If you're scared, you have a fight-or-flight response, insulin decreases. And this has nothing to do with blood glucose. We also know that even when you do eat a meal, and you start to, start to do uh, process the food, and you, the blood insulin goes up before blood glucose does because of incredence being sent from the gut. GLP-1 is the most famous one, but there's likely to be many others. And so this, this, is, this is half the pathway, and this is why I left the bottom half blank, is that there's a lot of other signaling that can go on to modulate glucose, uh, modulate insulin secretion. Most of these are modulatory. They don't cause secretion in the absence of glucose. Of course, that's good, because if you have low blood glucose, the last thing you want coming into your system is more insulin. But they do modulate, either by lowering the glucose response or by raising the glucose response. And many of these are G-protein-coupled receptor modulated. Obviously, there's juxtaposition and gap junction things also I want to talk about today. And so one of these that my lab got interested in for really circuitous reasons is dopamine. 
And there was this paper about 10 years ago that published that showed that beta cells have D2-like dopamine receptors, that uh, if you put uh, glucose on, you stimulate the secretion, but if you put dopamine on, you blocked out the secretion. You, even though you had glucose, you blocked the secretion. So it was a downregulation from dopamine. Dopamine is, a, is an inhibitory G-protein coupled receptor, so that made some sense. But what didn't make any sense is there's no dopaminergic neurons in the island. And this has been really well documented. I think this is completely true. We have no, no qualms with that. So the question was, is this an important physiological event, or is this just something that happens, just left over from evolution? The one thing that's been most disappointing to me in my career as a biologist is evolution is not efficient. I, so you always think about evolution drives things to efficiency. No, evolution drives things to when they work and then gives up on it. And a lot of things just get left around. And especially for higher organisms, we live in very nutrient-rich environments. Evolution maybe drives us to do things fast or speedy, but not efficient at all. There are bacteria that live on sulfur metabolism. We have this little bit of energy. They're very efficient. But oxygen metabolism is very large, and we live in a nutrient-rich environment, so efficiency isn't something that happened. And we were just curious. Just as a physicist in biology, I was curious, is there a reason for this? We started looking into it. And uh, it turned out that uh, <coughs> circulating dopamine could not possibly explain things. The dopamine receptor, uh, uh, the important ones are probably these bottom ones, in the nanomolar, 100 nanomolar range of KDs. And the dopamine is, you know, even after a meal, less than one nanomolar uh, circulating. So that couldn't be. But L-dopa, the precursor of dopamine, actually can be very high. And if you eat high-protein meals, it can actually get up even much higher than this. There's reports of it at 50 nanomolar. So we have the idea that maybe what happens is that you eat a high-protein meal, um, L-dopa is created, and then that somehow the mechanism inside the beta cell has all the stuff to process L-dopa into dopamine, and that maybe this would be a negative regulatory loop, that dopamine would be packaged in granules, come out and activate and downregulate insulin secretion. Now, why you might need this, I'll speculate a little bit in a little bit, but we just decided, well, is this possible? Well, we started looking at the literature and the amino acid transporters, the decarboxylase are all in the island, and actually we have to show this. And we can show it in vivo that if we in inject L-DOPA, that we actually do, when we inject L-DOPA into the animal, and this is a large uh, amount of L-DOPA, and then we harvest islets 30 minutes later, the dopamine content has increased hundredfold. So it is possible that we can actually take L-DOPA out of the bloodstream, make dopamine, and load it up into the islets. If we take isolated islets and then we stimulate with glucose, of course we get an increase in the amount of insulin. If we add L-DOPA and then wash it out and let it build up in the granules, we see a gradual decrease as a dose response if we put more and more L-DOPA in. So it does seem that it's not affecting basal secretion at all, but as we actually load up the islets with, with, with L-DOPA, Expose them to L-DOPA, they load up with dopamine, and then if we do a stimulation, it will downregulate the amount of insulin secretion coming out. So it looks like all those things happen, and then one of the things that's interesting is that we did, we're able to show that dopamine actually is secreted at the same time if we stimulate insulin. So here's an interesting experiment. If you put dopamine in and it downregulates insulin secretion, how do you measure the dopamine coming out? If you load up lots of dopamine, then no insulin comes out, and then no dopamine comes out. But it turns out there's other ways you can stimulate than just uh, uh, just uh, calcium, and we can add cyclic AMP, uh, 
stimulated like porcelain, and we get uh, insulin secretion there. And as the insulin secretion goes up, so does the dopamine. And Paul Harris's group at the same time showed this in human islands, actually with amperometry, which is uh, uh, probably a much clearer way to show it, that insulin and dopamine are co-secreted. So you know that the, the beta cells not only have the secretory vesicles, they also have regular housekeeping vesicles that are moving, they're going to the surface all the time, and those are constitutively secreting whatever's inside of them. But it appears that dopamine, it may load into those as well, but in that case, it just leaks out. It does build up in the beta, in the insulin granules, and when you stimulate, you can get a big bolus coming out. And so we were able to show that, and it was really gratifying that it was also shown in human eyes. So we did have a way that there was a, uh, a uh, negative feedback mechanism. We were excited about that, but we were interested in what, is, what receptor is active in the beta cells. And the D2 dopamine receptor was shown to be in beta cells by Ruby, but the antibody they were using is really specific for D2 light receptors. And Jonathan and his group can tell you a lot more about these things. We're sort of amateurs uh, in this. But we were sort of interested in which one of these it might be. And all three of these seem to be, depending on what papers you read, expressed in beta cells. These are the inhibitory uh, dopamine receptors. And it turns out that D2, well, this is the one we expected, if we put this specific D2 blocker on, that it does not eliminate this dopamine effect. So if we have a normal control, we get glucose, we put dopamine on, we inhibit that. With the D2 blocker, we, we have uh, a little bit, maybe a little bit of raise of basal insulin, a uh, basal glucose. We still get the glucose stimulated insulin secretion, but it still goes away with dopamine. But if we do the specific D3 dopamine receptor blocker, instead of going away, we now actually relieve it. And we actually are confirming this with the D3 knockout mice. And what we see actually in the knockout mice is half of this goes away with the knockout mice. And if we add this blocker, the rest of the half goes away. I don't know what that means. It's supposed to be a specific blocker. The data, the data in the literature shows this to be a pretty nice specific blocker. I don't know what that means. But it does look like D2 is not playing a role. But D2 seems to be there. The mRNA for D2 is there. Uh, it's, it's hard to know how it's not getting to the surface and playing a role. Uh, but it does look to be D3 functionally is having a role there. So this is where we're sort of trying to go a little bit further. So we have this final model. And we have the dopamine, L dopamine coming in, being processed into dopamine, making a negative feedback loop. There's several things that this brings to mind in terms of significance right away. Um, obviously, one thing is dopamine receptors could be a target for type 2 diabetes. The problem in diabetes is that you have insulin in your, in your beta cells, but it's not coming out. You may be, the beta cells proliferate, eventually they just don't secrete enough insulin to balance the glucose load that you're having all the time. If you could. If you could take these dopamine receptors and block them, you would relieve this tonic inhibition and you would get more insulin. Now you might think dopamine's everywhere, but if you could develop something that didn't cross the blood-brain barrier, you might be able to target it specifically here, although dopamine also has roles in the kidney and the liver. Uh, but that's for drug discovery people, not me. Uh, but it, it is, we're always looking for new drug targets. Uh, the, the dopamine receptors here could be an undesired target for some of these second-generation non-traditional uh, non-canonical uh, antidepressant drugs that are known to cause metabolic syndrome and increase risks of type 2 diabetes. Uh, so that's always been thought to be feeding uh, brain neural control, but maybe there's actually a role for direct control of peripheral tissues, and maybe not just in the, in the 
beta cells, but maybe also in liver and other places. So I think that's an interesting thing to keep in mind. And this is something that we've think that we've been toying with. Amazon Rustioni, my lab, has been toying with writing a career development line, uh, grant along this line. That Parkinson's disease has been linked to dopamine transporter, and uh, something that comes in through dopamine transporter that uh, is is uh, deleterious to the neurons. And maybe with the high level of dopamine transporters, I didn't show that data, but there's high level of dopamine transporters also in beta cells. <clears throat> there is a link to people that have Parkinson's and type 2 diabetes, and maybe this dopamine transport is related to that link. And so we're doing some experiments and also a lot of literature in that area. And then the thing I'd like to say, which I think is completely new, and I really attribute this to Paul Harris much more than, than our thinking, but uh, so dopamine could actually be an anti-incretin that downregulates insulin secretion. Uh, if you have a high-carbohydrate meal and you get GLP-1 or other incretins secreted by the gut, as I mentioned, insulin starts going up before glucose goes up. And so we know there's a lot of signals from the gut that are coming down that are telling insulin secretion to go by, by upregulating it. But what about the flip side? What if you have a, a low-carbohydrate meal but you have high protein? Well, you're going to have a lot of calories you're going to trigger a lot of things that look like you've eaten a meal, and you're going to have insulin, but maybe you don't want so much insulin because you don't have so much glucose, you have a lot of protein. If L-dopa goes up, and L-dopa is secreted in, this, in the proximal part of the, uh, of the intestine, L-dopa goes up, maybe it inhibits insulin secretion so that as a fine-tuning, even though you have a big meal coming in, you're expecting to put a lot of insulin out, well, we have a lot of protein, so I'm going to fine-tune this and downregulate the insulin a little bit. As a physicist, you know, somebody who thinks control theory, I love this, right? Because, because you know, glucose is a, kind of a blunt tool. Sugar goes up, insulin goes up. But there's a lot of fine-tuning, especially if you think about how complicated a, a human is or a higher mammal is. There's a lot of fine-tuning that has to develop over the years. And so we think this is key. And this may also have some tie into why Roux-en-Y works. Roux-en-Y, they not only bypass the stomach, they bypass some of the proximal intestine. And if this really eliminates all the L-DOPA, it could explain why insulin secretion comes back at a higher level really early on, much earlier before weight loss or any other of the benefits. Um, when I talk to the gastric bypass people, they all poo-poo this for reasons that are actually are not unreasonable. But I think it really means we should measure L-DOPA in these patients, or at least in, in animal models of ruin why and see what happens. So we're all trying to, to, to do this. The only problem is that these are very expensive experiments and mice aren't a good model to do this in. Uh, although we do, have a, we do have a gastric bypass mouse center now. I can't even see the mouse, much less like, figure out how to tie those things together. <laughs> uh, and uh, we wrote a review on this in molecular endocrinology, uh, if you're interested in the details, came out last year. So I think this is very interesting uh, uh, physiology and, and uh, just how some sort of curiosity about how some sort of pathway can work can really lead into something that could be very important physiologically. On the other hand, it could be just left over from evolution. We still don't know at this time, but it's, it's interesting. So uh, I think you might have been clear from my introduction that I'm not really a physiologist or a diabetologist. I'm a, I'm a physicist. And so I actually like to measure things. That's what I like to do. And so I'm very interested in what these downstream pathways are because it brings a lot of, of ability to measure single molecules in cells and small numbers of molecules in cells to the floor. And so we've been interested in okay, this D2-like receptor, whatever it is, D2 or D3, what is it doing downstream? And of course, G3 
G-protein couple receptors have two mechanisms, the G-alpha, which you always on a dimmel cyclase usually, and this is a G-alpha-I inhibitory, G-alpha, or the G-beta-gamma subunits that have different targets, either cellular, um, uh, membrane, ion channels, or PLC-beta, and a few other targets that have been uh, described, but those are the main ones. And so the original paper by Ruby sort of showed that when you have, uh, when you add dopamine, you actually increase cyclic AMP. This must only happen in Geneva, because now I think there's about 10 or 15 groups worldwide that have done the same measurements, and nobody else gets this. Uh, what we see is a, a small decrease in mice. I think in the human islands, people see even a bigger decrease. Uh, so it does block, it does, it does uh, inhibit uh, cyclic AMP uh, synthesis by democyclase, but it, at least in the mouse islands, it's a small change. It's about a 50% change. Probably isn't enough to describe what we're seeing, although it may play a role. We don't think that, we think that even though there is a decrease and not an increase, which of course makes sense because it's a G-alpha-I couple uh, GPCR, that this is not the main thing that's happening. And one reason we think that is what we see in terms of calcium. So we measure calcium uh, oscillations and calcium uh, dynamics all the time, mainly because we have now nice transgenic mice with the GCAM5s. That's a really good way to measure it. And if you look at um, uh, the oscillations I showed you at the beginning in the eyelid, they slow down with dopamine. If you put a little bit of dopamine, they get a little slower. More dopamine, they slow down more. And this frequency of this decrease in frequency correlates very much with the decrease in secretion. Basically, every pulse gives you the same amount of secretion because that's sort of the readily releasable pool at that time. You get a calcium action potential, you get some secretion. You get another calcium action potential, you get more secretion. And if you put enough, of course, you block these out. And so we started thinking about this side of the pathway, which actually affects the calcium, uh, the calcium, either a direct effect on calcium channels or a direct on a, a, an effect on potassium channels, which increases the potassium conductance, which would also lower the calcium. And we do past clamping with David Jacobson, who's a assistant professor in our department. And what we see is there's an inward current that happens with dopamine. And that actually tells us that it looks to be more of a potassium channel. Potassium channels are going to have inward currents. Positive charge going to the outside, that's inward current. I know physicists made this up. Negative <laughs> charge is a current, but anyway. It's very confusing. But this is an inward current. And uh, we block with tolbutamide. It doesn't change it, so it's not the KATP channels. It's another channel. And if you're talking about G-protein coupled receptors and an inward rectifying potassium channel, you automatically come to the GERC, which is the G-protein coupled receptor inward rectifying potassium channels. And uh, they're very famous in this city because Rod McKinnon just had the crystal structure of them with the G-protein coupled, uh, with the G-proteins bound to them last year in, uh, I think, in nature. And so what, they, what these do is they're targets for the G-beta-gamma, and it opens up the potassium. So this would actually explain what we see if the GERC. So what, can we show that the G-beta-gamma is interacting with the GERC channels? And what we want to do is use some sort of uh, molecular marker. And what I'll show you here is FRET, but we've also been using correlation spectroscopies, ways that we can get down and look at single molecules inside of cells interacting. And so if we have our GERC channel labeled with uh, one fluorescent protein, we have our G-beta-gamma labeled with another one, and they come together, we should get FRET, or if they were just diffusing together, we would be able to see that. They diffuse together in, a, in an interactive way. But the problem is that I have all kinds of GERC channels that might be labeled. I'm labeling one of the GERC3 subunits, and it can make all kinds of GERC channels. I'm not 
turning on all of them. I'm not only turning on some of them. And I have the G, one of the G beta gamma subunits labeled, this uh, GNG2, uh, it's one of the G gamma subunits. I have that labeled, and that can be, these are promiscuous, so it can be on all kinds of G protein coupled receptors. So how do I find these two that are interacting in a sea of ones that are not interacting? In other words, I take a picture of this room, and I have no resolution, I just know you're in this room, and I want to know who's next to each other. It's hard to know. So I have to teach you a little bit of biophysics. That's, that's what I do. Okay, so this school bus problem is very famous in the city because Sandy Simon of Rockefeller is the one who has sort of has popularized this. But this is the same thing as, as what I just said. If I had a was in space and I had a school bus telescope, maybe just a telescope with a yellow filter, and I wanted to know what school buses did, I would take pictures and I would see stable, large school bus signals uh, that are stable for 20 hours or more at a time, sometimes for months at a time, very large signal, very stable. I would come to the conclusion that what school buses did was go to parking lots and sit there for 20 hours next to each other talking or doing something. And every once in a while I might see this. And I would come to the conclusion it's probably a staining artifact. <laughs> because how can I have these large, stable signals that aren't what's important with this little random signal? But this is biology. Biology is a few molecules doing the important thing with a bunch of players on the side. Because if you think about it, a complex that has to come together transiently can't take the chance that there's not enough functional proteins around. So um, <coughs> if, there's not, if a protein goes bad, it's not functional, you don't call up the nucleus and say, go over and get the transcription machinery to that site, start transcribing more, make all that, and translate it really fast, because right now, I'm going to die if I don't run. You know, we're running from a bear. We need to have that signal. So there has to be a lot of excess in biology. And these are the ones we're looking for. So one of the ways that we've come to do this is by doing the, what we call the photochromic <laughs> login fret, where we use a photoswitchable acceptor. So if you do a fret experiment, one of the things people do is you do a fret experiment, these two things come together, and if you quench the, the acceptor, the donor gets brighter. So that you excite the donor, it's giving some of this energy to the acceptor. If you quench the acceptor, by, usually by photobleaching it, the donor gets brighter. But if we have an acceptor now that we can switch on and off, like this reversible tag red fluorescent protein, then what happens is when it's on, the donor gets, gets dimmed. When it goes off, the donor gets bright. Now I have a situation where I can turn this on and off, and the only ones where the only things, only donors that are going to get bright are the ones that are next to the one that's here. But it doesn't matter what my overall donor what donor intensity is, I'm only going to see the ones that are getting brighter because I know when I turn this on and turn it off. Because this is a time frame that I've stipulated. So I've put a frequency in, now I can use that frequency to demodulate and get just that signal. And we heard about FM last night. FM was invented at Columbia, apparently. Uh, and there's a big red tower that the guy built uh, north on the Hudson River. And uh, I've forgotten his name already. Armstrong. Armstrong, yeah. So it's the Armstrong Tower, and it's built up on the Hudson. So it's the same thing. So this is a frequency, we're doing a frequency modulation. We look at the frequency we want, we demodulate, and we only see the signal where the two things are next to each other. And so this is a way that we can get down to seeing one molecule interacting in a sea of hundreds of other molecules. And we've done in vitro experiments showing that we can see this down to 1% fret over 99% non-fretting. So we think this is the kind of thing we want to use. And 
So here's just shows you this is just two that are tied together. We turn this on and off. You see this gets a little brighter when that's dim. You can see it the best up here. These are just two that are tied together. Nothing looks that impressive. This is pretty impressive when you take the data. But when you look by eyes, it's never that impressive because your eyes are a logarithmic detector, and this thing's varying by a factor of two. So our eyes are look, used to looking over hundreds of you know, thousand-fold brightness, not two-fold brightness. Uh, but anyway, if we do this on the dirt in the Chibane Gamma, the first experiments are sort of promising. There's a little bit of energy transfer between them, and we haven't done now the experiments. We're just doing the experiments where we're stimulating with, with, uh, <coughs> stimulating with dopamine, stimulating with glucose, and looking at the changes of these. But when we, this is a fully stimulated one, we do see that there is G-beta-gamma bound to the GERC. And we can do some negative controls to show that this is not just a membrane. Not all membrane proteins are this. On the membrane surface, proteins are crowded and you can get a lot of spurious crap. So we are encouraged that we can, can do this. And the reason I want to talk about this is that this is really general. This is really general. We have made this, the, the photo-switchable protein on the G-beta-gamma. So any, any G protein target, uh, any G protein or G protein couple receptor G beta gamma target, you could label with the yellow fluorescent protein and you could do the same sort of thing. We think we maybe can do this as a screening where we can screen for orphan receptors and different things, what potential targets would be. Uh, although, you know, switching things back and forth on a single cell isn't exactly the best screen, but if you've narrowed it down a little ways, you can do that. Uh, so that's the main bottom line of the last part, and I just wanted to say, you know, I think we've really shown this feedback loop is there. The physiological implications are, are not fully set yet, but um, the dopamine is synthesized because secreted acts on the D3, and the D3 uh, perhaps works through GERC activation. So that's the first story I wanted to tell you about the non-glucose, <laughs> and there's several other things that we're working on along the same lines with GLP-1 and some of the other potential uh, targets of that. I think this is a big growth area, and I'd just like to say this, people, young people especially, if you're thinking about beta cell, this is a growth area because physiologically glucose is less than half the story. These other things are, are the other half of the story, and yet there's 50 years of glucose stimulant insulin secretion in probably 10,000 papers, and there's 10 years and maybe 100 papers of the other stuff, and so there's a huge area that's enough for all of us to do for a long time, and all these things are potential drug targets. Okay. In the second half of the talk, I want to switch to the other half, which is really where my lab is going now, which is the alpha cell. Um, and on the other, when you get to low blood glucose, alpha cells turn on and secrete uh, glucagon, and when you get high glucose, then the glucagon switches off. And that's shown here, just in a uh, perfusion, where we have islets in the chamber and we perfuse with glucose. You do the step up, insulin comes up, glucagon goes down, and then you see the first phase and second phase of insulin secretion. And then as you go back down, glucagon comes back up, glucose, uh, insulin goes down. And the glucagon is interesting. The glucagon takes a long time to go back. <coughs> I think this is maybe a telling functional, uh, uh, important, a telling important functional role of, of how glucagon is regulated. It turns off pretty quickly. It takes a long time to come on, as opposed to insulin, which turns on quickly and turns off quickly. So it seems like there's a much slower response. Now, there's a couple of things that are interesting about this. One is, the alpha cell and the beta cell are the same darn cell. Evolution, you know, when they develop, they, there's the time when the cells have both glucagon and insulin, and then insulin gets turned off, and those become alpha cells. If you look at the surface of them, they have the same sort of 
uh, protein distributions. They have KTP channels. They have glucokinase. They make ATP. They have voltage-gated calcium channels. And so they're very, very similar to the cells. There's, when you start looking, there's not many things different. So how one does this and the other does that is really a conundrum. It's been 40 years people have been working on this, and there's still papers that come out that say, we've been doing this for a long time and we have no clue. <laughs> All the models that have been proposed actually are self-inconsistent. Even, they, they, even the people who propose them have data that says they can't be right. And so I think we're just, we're like the men with the elephant, where we're feeling parts of this elephant and we're not seeing the whole thing. Right? Somebody has the trunk and they say the elephant's like a big hose. Somebody hits the side of the elephant and says it's like a wall. I think this is where we are in the alpha cell, despite many, many years. I'll talk about why that is the case and why I think we're poised to make progress now. So there's two models that have been proposed. One is the electrophysiology model. And that basically says that there's slightly different channels on the cell surface, especially these, these sodium channels. And there are more sodium channels in the alpha cell than the beta cell. And that somehow, even though the KTP closes, depolarizes the membrane, calcium comes in, that changes the, the, the sodium, the potential for sodium. The sodium comes in, and that hyperpolarizes the membrane, which closes the L-type calcium channels. I mean, this is really, it's, it's intellectually a lot of gyrations. A couple of groups have published 50 papers on this. None of the two, never do the two things, no two papers can actually support the model of the next paper. And this is also really hard to understand because if you, isolate alpha cells, or you have diabetes where you don't have beta cells, alpha cells no longer are turned around. In diabetes, alpha cells look like a beta cell. In type 1 diabetes, when you have glucose, you get more glucagon. In advanced type 2 diabetes, when beta cells fail, when you have glucose, you get more glucagon. So it's not something that can be intrinsic of the alpha cell. It really is dependent on the beta cell. So that brings us to the second model, which is the paracrine signaling models. And a lot of times what people have thought about is insulin is an important signal. Uh, if you have insulin on, then insulin will decrease, somehow decrease calcium, and that will, uh, or GABA is another one, and it decreases calcium, and that changes the secretion. But all these models are calcium dependent. Calcium comes in, glucagon goes out. Of course, this is what we know, right? We know it from neuro, we know it from beta cells. It's a comfortable thing. Unfortunately, it doesn't fit with what we see in, in vivo. And so this is one of the problems. Beta, studying alpha cells. Alpha cells are only 10 to 15% of the islet. So here's an islet, there's alpha, a mouse islet. In human islets, there's maybe 20 to 25% alpha cells. But you still have the thing that they're on the surface of the mouse islet, or maybe they're on the surface of small clusters of beta cells in the human islet. Uh, they're a small number, so you can't grind up the islet and measure anything that's alpha cell specific. When we take them out and disperse them, they're not functionally equivalent. When we isolate alpha cells, and people have done this for a long time by their size or, or antibody markers, then they don't function. They don't turn off. Glucagon goes up with glucose. So it's only in the islet that they uh, have this glucagon secretion uh, inhibition with glucose. And the available alpha cell lines are terrible. They have no glucose sensitivity. So they're, they're completely useless for understanding. But with uh, fluorescent protein-labeled alpha cells, we're now able to now go in and study them inside the island. So not only can we sort alpha cells and get a fully pure population, where every, every cell that we sort, we know is fluorescent, and we even do, we sort them first, then we go through and pick out all the non-fluorescent ones 
to make sure that we have really a pure population. And then we can also look at the behavior of them in, inside the context of the island, where here's a calcium, calcium trace in an alpha cell at low glucose where there are fire reduction potentials, and we can see that uh, inside the island. And when we do this, the first thing we see is that alpha cells do not turn off their calcium inside the island. And we weren't the first people to have these. Lots of people have these mice. I know they've all done these experiments. They've never published it because it ruins their hypothesis. When I talked to their students, they said, oh yeah, we looked at that. The PI thought this can't be right. We must have bleed through from the beta cells. There's so many of them. But if you have a confocal microscope, you can actually look at just inside an alpha cell. And we can do things that we know are alpha cell specific, that we measure only in an alpha cell. So we know that we're looking just from alpha cells. And the calcium goes up. The calcium goes up in the alpha cells just like it does in the beta cells, maybe not as much. But it's not calcium going down. So whatever it is, is not coming from calcium. And you can do this, you can put all kinds of things on here. Tobutamide blocks the KTP channels, increases calcium, increases glucagon secretion. Depolarizing with potassium chloride increases calcium, increases glucagon secretion. Diazoxide that blocks, uh, that uh, activates the KTP channels, lowers calcium, lowers secretion. Glucose is the only one that raises calcium and lowers secretion. So we're thinking calcium isn't the place to look. There's another place to look. Oh, I, this is just uh, showing that sorted cells actually do go up also. Their secretion goes up. So the other place to look is cyclic AMP. And cyclic AMP, we know, is differentially regulated. If you stimulate with adrenaline, epinephrine, you do not change insulin, and you do not change beta cell cyclic AMP, but you do change glucagon and you do change alpha cell cyclic AMP. So here's something, cyclic AMP can be differentially regulated in alpha cells and beta cells. We just showed how cyclic AMP uh, related uh, things can change secretion. Uh, we know that from GLP-1 also is cyclic AMP uh, affected. So there's a reason to believe that cyclic AMP could possibly be a mediator. So we started looking at this, at the cyclic AMP dependent pathway. The first thing we did is put the IVMX forskolin, which is sort of the cyclic AMP cocktail. Forskolin activates adrenal cyclase, makes cyclic AMP. IVMX blocks, broadly blocks phosphodiesterases, which stops cyclic AMP from being degraded. When you do that, uh, glucagon secretion goes down. At high glucose, when you put this on, uh, it blocks any inhibition of, of, of glucose on glucagon secretion. So by raising cyclic AMP, you can overcome this, whatever this glucose inhibition of glucagon secretion is. And in fact, then you can go further and you can say, oh, that's in human islands, and the same thing happens now again in mouse islands. So it both happens in both human and mouse. And that, this is important. There's a lot of people, we, we work mostly in mice, mouse islands, we do <coughs> in human islands when we can, but people always say, oh, well, you have a difference, what are you sure about the difference? But the glucagon inhibition by glucose is exactly the same in humans and in mice. If I take a mouse and I give glucose, I see the same glucagon coming out as I take a human and I give them a glucose bolus. So while the islands are different and I'm sure there's lots of differences, it's hard for me to believe there's some different physiological pathway that leads to the exactly the same result. So what I want to find is the things that are the same in both humans and mice, and let's ignore the things that are different and look for those things that are the same. And this is one thing that looks to be the same. So I think we're maybe on a good, good trajectory. We can actually then look at what happens in cyclic AMP in alpha cells in intact islands. 
So these are alpha cells, these are human, that have been stained. This is immunostaining for cyclic A and alpha cells. And we can read regions of interest. And we see that when we add glucose, cyclic AMP decreases both in human and in mouse. So glucose is decreasing cyclic AMP. We know decreasing cyclic AMP can lead to decreased glucagon. Uh, <coughs> does that happen? Well, if we force, uh, did I get the right one? I didn't get the right one. Sorry. So what molecules might affect this? Insulin is one, and we already mentioned that insulin is one that's been talked about a lot. But one of the pieces of data, and it kind of went out of place there, so I didn't show it, but one piece of the data, when you sort cells, when you sort the alpha cells, none of these things decrease uh, glucagon. They all decrease it in the iodine, but none of them decrease it in the sorted alpha cells. So it gets to be hard. But one that decreases cyclic AMP, this is a G-alpha I couple, is somatostatin. And somatostatin is very interesting that, that, that it comes from the delta cells, and it's a, thought to be a hormone. But insulin, when it's needed anywhere in the body, has to come from the beta cells. Beta cell secreted is used everywhere in the body. That's a hormone. Glucagon is made only in the alpha cells, generally made only in the alpha cells in the pancreas. It's needed in the liver or other parts of the body. That's a hormone. Somatostatin is needed all over the body, but wherever it's needed, it's made. If it's needed in the brain, it's made in the brain. If it's needed in the kidney, it's made in the kidney. So I think of somatostatin being much more of a peregrine signal within the islet as opposed to a hormone that's being secreted and going up. And if we look at the alpha cells, a lot of them are crowded around the existing delta cells. So we thought somatostatin is a good possibility. And somatostatin is a G-protein-coupled receptor with an alpha I subunit. That would decrease uh, adenocyclase, which would decrease uh, cyclic AMP. And that would maybe that at high glucose, uh, somatostatin is being secreted, because somatostatin is glucose-sensitive, just like insulin is, would be secreted. That would, the G-alpha would, uh, the G-alpha I, from oh, sorry, this is my G-alpha here. G-alpha I comes from here, inhibits adenocyclase, and decreases cyclic AMP. So what happens if we look at this? If we put somatostatin on, cyclic AMP decreases, and if we block this SSTR2 specific, the specific inhibitor SSTR2, which we know is the only mouse uh, somatostatin receptor subtype in mouse, in human there's multiple ones, but SSTR2 has been functionally identified as being the most important one. Again, something that looks to be the same in human and mouse. Uh, if we put that specific inhibitor, we block that effect. So we do not get inhibition. So it looks like SSTR2 can actually inhibit glucose, uh, inhibit glucagon secretion, and by blocking that, we actually in eliminate the glucose inhibition of glucagon secretion. <coughs> Further, we can sort of show that if in the glucose situation, where we put glucose on, if we put that inhibitor, we knock that out. That's what I actually just said. This is the data here. And uh, pertussis toxin uh, is not, it's not uh, pertussis toxin dependent which sort of means that it's, sorry, it is pestotoxin dependent, which does mean that it's a G-alpha-I subunit uh, indicator as opposed to being a G-beta-gamma uh, downstream signal. So we think that that's one of the roles, but what about insulin? So insulin also has been identified as a possible player, and insulin has many, many pathways in many roles, but one that it has is activation of phosphodiesterases, and PD3B has been the largest one in the beta cell, uh, no, I haven't been identified. And that also can then degrade cyclic AMP. So if you have insulin coming out at high glucose that's degrading cyclic AMP and somatostatin coming out at high glucose that is down-regulating cyclic AMP production, these two things together might actually be what happens, which is why no one, when we, have, when we put any one of these on, we don't see the effect. 
And so insulin also decreases cyclic AMP, which we would fully expect. And if we block the insulin receptor with this SNI61 compound from Nova Nordisk, that effect goes away. So that's good. And uh, the thing that when we put them together, we see that there's actually an additive effect in decreasing cyclic AMP. That's sort of interesting. So this is an additive effect. And they do knock out, uh, even at low glucose, that we knock out glucagon secretion very much like looking like what happens at high glucose. So at low glucose, putting insulin and synapsetin on seems to mimic the effect of high glucose. The most important things, the most exciting data that I think I've taken in my lab, well, I didn't take it. Uh, Amy Elliott took it in my lab, but this is an experiment. I said, okay, if we want to put this, then we take the isolated cells, alpha cells with no beta cells, no delta cells around. When we have those, no single compound decreases glucagon secretion. But putting these both together, not only do we knock out cyclic AMP a lot, we also decrease secretion. And this doesn't happen if we put somatostatin and insulin on separately. They basically are here. Actually, insulin seems to grow it alone, which is odd. Uh, and, but it knocks it out when we put them both on together. So in a normal eyelid, we have this situation where we have both insulin and somatostatin. So this would make some sense. And we also now are taking cells sorting them and putting alpha and beta cells back together, uh, alpha and delta cells back together, and then all three of them back together with these fluorescently labeled ones uh, to see if we can recapitulate this in sort of a cellular effect as opposed to adding exogenous uh, insulin somatostatin on. So we end up with a model that looks like this, and this is the, the final summary slide, uh, where at, high at low glucose, we have cyclic AMP. It's being made. Uh, there's no activation of the dental cyclic, or in the dental cyclic is level at its resting level. Insulin receptor is not stimulated. As glucose goes up, insulin receptor gets stimulated, activating phosphodiesterase, which degrades cyclic AMP. Uh, dental cyclase is slowed down, which causes cyclic AMP synthesis to go down. This lowers cyclic AMP. We don't really know what the cyclic AMP target is. We do know that this goes through PKA and not through EPAC. I don't have time to show that data, but we've been able to show that it doesn't go through the EPAC, it's a PKA effect. And so the com combination of these things somehow leads to a decrease in glucagon secretion. And there's a lot of potential targets downstream, but I think there's going to be some fun biophysics figuring out uh, downstream from there. But this also explains the one thing I mentioned about uh, the glucagon secretion is that after it decreases, it takes a long time for it to come back. And you can imagine that as the insulin receptor is no longer stimulated, this phosphodiesterase 3B goes away, but it takes a long time for a dental cyclist to build the cyclic AMP level back up to the low glucose level. So this actually kinetically even agrees with what we see, that this model would take 30 minutes or so to build back up to normal cyclic AMP levels, since we're just going back, we don't have a G-alpha uh, S that's stimulating the dental cyclase, we're just going back to the rest level. It would take a long time for the cyclic AMP to build back up. And that actually is what we see going from this high glucose back to the low glucose situation. Now, this is one view of it, and this is, again, one elephant, one part of the elephant. But I think it's a part that's been completely missed by all the people thinking about calcium, 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 calcium. That it is this, and, and there clearly can be feedback uh, to the calcium channels. There also can be localized control of calcium coming in right at those glucagon secretion, and there's some evidence that there's roles for that. So I don't believe that this is the be-all and end-all. I think this is, again, maybe half the story along with the half that we haven't quite figured out on the, on the electrical end 
of things. But these things are going to get very complicated very fast, and I think we're going to need nice computer models of these things that allow us to make quantitative predictions that then we can go through and test with molecular uh, manipulations of these different uh, molecules. Okay, so that's the end of what I wanted to say today. I just wanted to thank Alessandro, who's the one who's done all the things in the front, uh, is the one who did all the stuff with dopamine and uh, got his PhD in my lab and is staying around as a, as a postdoc, at least for now. Uh, and as far as I'm concerned, you can say forever. Uh, and uh, Savon Lomachana was the one who got us started with uh, doing all the alpha cell stuff, and then Savon there, and now he's uh, just got a job as the imaging facility manager at Drexel University. And Amy Elliott is here. Uh, she doesn't like this picture, just the big yellow pants, but um, <laughs> she took this picture, so it's not my fault. Um, uh, anyway, uh, she's uh, just finishing her PhD on the, on the alpha cell stuff with the cyclic AMP and is uh, actually, as we speak, interviewing today at uh, NIH for a postdoc and has a couple other interviews for postdocs and the rest of the crew here. And I'd really like to thank my fun funding sources. I guess I should thank NIDDK because they think I'm nice and <laughs> named everybody, but uh, we, do like to, we do like to interact with people. And what we can do is, like I said, is even as much work as I showed you is really just a small part of this puzzle. And there's really a ton of work to do uh, looking at this from all kinds of different angles. And uh, with that, I thank you for your attention and be happy to answer questions. One of the ancient drugs for treating diabetes is metformin. How does that fit into this story? Well, so, I mean, it obviously, you know, it, it fits in, you know, obviously cyclic AMP and cyclic AMP activated proteins are, are in those pathways. Um, but I think largely it, it fits in tangentially. I mean, there might be some crosstalk between the pathways. Uh, I don't know what the action of metformin is on alpha cells. I don't even know if that's known. I've, I've never seen anything about that. Well, they advertise it as reducing glycogen. Yeah, but that's a direct, that's an effect in the liver. I think that's the effect that it has in the liver. It does have an effect on beta cells um, in terms of increasing insulin secretion, and I think that obviously feeds feeds into that. You know, these systemic things get to be very complicated. You know, I mean, I, the first thing we did is we knocked out glucokinase. We knocked we decreased glucokinase by half, which is the rate limiting step for insulin secretion. When you knock it out by half, you think, okay, what's going to happen is it's going to, uh, it will lower insulin secretion and blood glucose will go up. But it's, that's not what happens. Blood glucose goes down because the liver actually dom starts dominating everything and, and liver effects. So the, the, you really need to consider both of those and how it affects both liver hepatocyte function and beta cell function in balancing that. And I haven't looked into that uh, quantitatively. Balanced, 
And so it could be a D2. It could, it could work through this kind of mechanism. Uh, but we might not see it very well in the mouse, and it might be something we need to look at human islands. So this is the kind of thing where the difference between species could be really important, because we're at this thing where things aren't exactly the same. Uh, so, and this, this is a case where, and that's why Paul worked a lot on the, on the human islands, the devils in the details, and there's slight differences between these. And of course, you know, these things, these drug things are looked at for months and months, and we're talking about something that's 30 seconds. So, uh, it could be another whole another behavior we don't even see. But we'd like to look at that on human islets uh, and see if we see some of these same things. Yeah, following the, with uh, D3, so if I understood, D3 will modulate insulin secretion when you have like a bolus of protein. Or yeah. So what happens in the D3 knockout if you enrich diet with protein? Yeah, good question. We don't know. We just uh, so we just bought the D3 mice and, and uh, they so we bought them a long time ago but they were cryopreserved and Jackson had trouble and we've only done we've only done two mice worth of experiments which is why I just said it looks to be confirmed and they don't have any data out there because there's no error bars on it uh, but that's an experiment we'd like to do yeah so we'd like to really do this experiment and we'd like to try some of these drugs also when you have a systemic thing you have the other players. And believe me, I mean, I don't, I'm not naive enough to think that dopamine is only in the brain and the beta cell. Dopamine receptors, actually we know dopamine receptors are also in the alpha cell. And we think there's some role for dopamine actually modulating glucagon secretion as well. Uh, and if, if dopamine is coming out with insulin, that could actually be affecting glucagon secretion. And those are sort of things that could be, this thing gets unbelievably complicated, unbelievably fast, and then you got the liver playing, you got kidneys playing, and there's Hormones coming back and forth from all those. So I'd like to do that experiment. You think there's any other system that might be modulating glucagon secretion, like the dopamine receptor? Uh, yes, my guess is that every other. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, so far everything we've looked at modulates glucagon secretion. So. This may be very ignorant, but patients with Parkinson's take teledopa. No. As far as I can tell, nobody has. And we've looked at that. We've looked at that literature. And we thought, how can they do patient studies and not have a met metabolic workout? But it, it's almost like it's not allowed. Uh, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of things, a lot of examples like this in literature where where drugs are developed for certain things or not. Like the knockout, the Connexin 36 knockout. Connexin 36 is also in the retina. And these people do this, and those mice have terrible metabolic syndrome. You put them on a high-fat diet, they're instantly diabetic. Yet this was, there was 50 papers reported on connection 36 knockouts. And I talked to the people and said, oh yeah, we knew these mice got obese and they get diabetic, we had to sacrifice them a lot. They never, they never wrote that down. Uh, so, uh, and I think the same thing happens in, in clinical practice, right? You're worried about treating something for some reason. And, you know, these things get wildly complicated. When you open up the can of worms, you get to the point where you can't publish because you just can't understand it. So, but I think that would be interesting to look at. Uh, 